The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald, and you're listening to Blethered on the Big Light Network. My guest is Dennis LaCorio. Dennis has been the voice of Doctor Who for over 50 years, achieving number ones in 42 countries and countless gold and platinum records. We talk about Dennis' early days in New Jersey and the formation of Doctor Who and how Sylvia's mother put them on the map, plus the true story of the real Sylvia and her mother. We discuss Doctor Who's stratospheric success and what's kept their music in people's hearts for over five decades. And there are incredible tales about Shel Silverstein, Billy Connolly, Elvis Costello and more over an illustrious and phenomenal life and career that's still going strong. And as always, there's plenty more. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash bleddered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher, where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't Fret About Debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. So, Dennis LaCorrier, this is actually the second time that you and I have spoken through a screen. Do you want to know when the first time was? Yeah, I do. I do. So I'll fill you in. So it was the 11th of October, 2016, and I. So I was in Barcelona, and I couldn't make it to the to your gig at the Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow, and right. I was absolutely devastated. And my mum, like Tracy, she FaceTimed me for most of the gig, so I could see it. And I'm sitting watching, and I'm thinking, "Fucking hell, I'm so gutted, I'm not there." Then the phone rings again, and I'm just showing you the photograph. <laughs> I'm such an amicable fella. You I are really the, am. And even, the, yeah, what happened? Some Your mum held it up and we spoke? Yeah, so I think you were signing at the end and for the for the the, the benefit of the people who can't see oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a, a FaceTime image of me and you. And the, you're there and you were lovely chatting away. Now, I was in shock. Like, I, I don't get starstruck or anything easily, but I just... Because also I didn't expect it, you know. I'm sitting. It's like midnight by this point in Spain, and then. Oh man, don't wa- don't waste your starstruck on me, man. There's got to there's got to be somebody else who warrants it a little bit more than me. So. Yeah, too right. Actually, do you know I'm only joking. No, but um, I'm like I, the, I'm like the unknown singer. I'm like the unknown singer. I'm the guy that for 40 years has been singing songs everybody knows, and they're not exactly sure who it is. I think. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a compliment in there somewhere. Um, now we'll go back. So first of all. I'll, I'll start this with me. I've got a, a great memory, like a freakish memory. And my earliest memories are being in my mum's car, unable to see over the dashboard, but singing along to, right. to, you, to you and Dr. Hook. Now, to go way back to June 1949 when you were born, 
what are the sort of earliest memories that you have? And especially I'm interested in related to, to your mum and, and her music taste. Uh, my mom was only 19 when I was born. So she was a young girl and she had friends and she listened to music. And so I listened to what my music, uh, my mom listened to. And uh, she always liked singers. Johnny Mathis and Dinah Washington and uh, Johnny Nash and Sam Cooke. Uh, all great voices, mm. just great voices. And uh, so that's what I grew up with. And, I, you know, what really made me want to do it was the Beatles. But then again, great voices, mm. voices you've never heard before. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, nobody sounded like that until they sounded like that. And then everybody sounded like that. They're those kind of singers. <laughs> am I am I mistaken, or did Sam Cooke was he the original singer of Only Sixteen? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've told this story before, but m my mom and her friends used to. I lived in New Jersey, and she and her friends used to go to Philadelphia. Uh, I don't know why, just to hang out and uh, go to music clubs and stuff. And my mom used to tell me that she met. Sam Cooke briefly. And I didn't believe it. You know, you never believe when your mom tells you things that are cool. And yeah. when he was on television in America, Ed Sullivan's show, she'd say, I know him. And as much as I didn't believe it, part of me wanted to believe it because I loved him. I loved his voice. I loved what he was doing. And uh, one day we went to, uh, she said, come on, we're going to go to an amusement park. I actually tell this story in the show before we play the song. Uh, uh, she said, we're going to go somewhere to an amusement park. And we went and Sam Cooke was playing. And I didn't know it. And he did his show and he was signing autographs. And my mom yelled, hey, Sam. And he looked up and yelled, hey, Ruth. And I went, oh, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was it. That was the whole exchange. But that was, you know, he might as well adopted me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so his songs were always on my mind. And, uh, only 16 was a song that I used to just sing with my acoustic guitar, you know. Mm. And uh, uh, there was a, a section in the early Dr. Hook shows, very early, where the band used to wander off the stage and leave me out there to sing whatever I wanted to. And I sang, one day I sang Only 16, and people liked it, and I kept singing it, and then we recorded it. Mm. And it became a big hit. And that's a real, you know, I love full circle moments because it's a full circle moment when I get a gold record and I got my mom one. And so there's a gold record with her name on it and Sam Cooke's name on it because he wrote it and stuff. And I, yeah. just, I just love that. You know, you can't, do, you can't make those things happen. You just got to live long enough for them to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost as if it's like some sort of fate. I'm, like, I'm really interested. I want to talk about Transfer Station. And all the bars yeah, and all the corners. Yeah. And so, well, first of all, then, if you can tell us and for the listener what Transfer Station was and describe what those bars looked like and why you were even there. Yeah, the transfers. I, I, I grew up in Union City, New Jersey, which is just across the river from Manhattan. And so there was a lot of traffic. And the transfer station was a little area like of about three or four corners that met. And there were restaurants and uh, nightclubs there because that's where people used to transfer to other buses. Mm -hmm. So you'd probably get to New York from the from there, or you could go to Newark, which was the, the capital, you know. Yeah. Or uh, and, and so the transfer station just met 
this was the area that you went and caught whatever bus you were looking for. In later days, they still called it that, but it wasn't so much the hub of the bus, uh, the bus route, but all those restaurants and stuff turned into nightclubs and bars. Yeah. And so for me, that was where I used to go and sit on the steps and listen to the bands. And when the door opened, I used to try to look in there real fast to see what they were doing. And it's kind of what I was doing when I met the guys in Hook. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was old enough to go in, you know, so I was sitting in with a lot of bands. I played drums and stuff because it was like a little music hub right in the middle of Union City, New Jersey. Who the hell would have thought of that? And uh, that's where I met the, the members of the band. Yeah, Because the thing I'm really particularly interested in is you've said before, like, when you were a drummer at 15 years old with school friends and you're playing for the love of music and not because you want to be famous and then it's because it's a passion it's i don't know it's what you love doing that fame and success then happens to to come after it do you know what i mean by that yeah oh i man i'm i have been a chancer all my life you know in union city new jersey playing with all these bands and then i was with this band and we got an opportunity to do a song in a film with dustin hoffman because we made a tape and someone heard it and someone else heard it and the right person heard it now we're in the dustin hoffman film and filming that movie all day and still going back to that little bar at night and playing for drunks and saying, here's a song we recorded for a Dustin Hoffman film. (laughs) Get the hell out of here. You know, so I've I've been a chancer, man. And then that soundtrack record got us on CBS and it Mm. got us an association with Shel Silverstein, who wrote Sylvia's mother and wrote the music in the movie. So I've just been a chancer, man. I didn't have any aspirations. I just was doing what felt good to me because I was young, you know, I mean, it's a good thing something happened because you can't stay a chancer all your life. But I think maybe I've even proved that theory wrong. <laughs> I think yeah, it's, it's a great example of just kind of pursuing your happiness of what you enjoyed that movie that you're referring to, the Dustin Hoffman one. Who is Harry Kellerman and why is yeah. he saying those terrible things about me? So would I be correct in saying it's at this point that you meet um, Ron Halfkind and he kind of takes a real shine to you and invites you well, he, was, he was he was the musical director on the film yeah and uh, so we got to work with him and he knew Shell and yeah it became it was sort of a except for us we were like the, the outside children but it was a real family project mm-hmm. project uh, Dustin was the star uh, Ulu Grossbard was the director and and he used to be a stage director and and Dustin used to be his stage manager and Herb Gardner, who wrote it, wrote plays that Ulu Grossbart had directed and Herb and Shel Silverstein were real good friends. So it was all people who had worked together and been professionally connected, except yeah. for us. We were just a bunch of hippies, but they kind of liked something about the rawness of the band. You know? Yeah. It's it's great that that was your sort of first then foray into it because some maybe you're saying you were all a bunch of hippies and the fact that they're all family and it's this probably really nice environment is like the perfect springboard for you guys to think yeah we really want to do this we really want to press ahead so then I mean it was at that point we invited to the CBS Records convention in LA and then you relocated to San Francisco. Yeah, you know I mean for me just to back you up a little bit, for me, the real reason I was excited about participating in that film was Shel Silverstein, because I was a Shell fan. 
and I had some albums of his inside folk songs. And I his music used to just blow me away. And he had that, I don't know if you've ever heard Shell sing, but he had a real scratchy voice. And and when they brought us in the, the cassette and said, here, learn these songs, but don't don't mind the guy's voice. You can't sing. <laughs> and they we put the tape on and I heard it was Shell. Man, at that point I was in. Yeah. I was in. I wanted to work with Shell. And you know, I had a pretty much lifelong relationship with Shell, having done his play later on in years. And but that's what hooked me. Not being in a movie or anything. I just wanted to be around Shell. Yeah. You know, and uh we were. I mean, he wrote the first you know, bunch of songs we ever recorded. I'll um I've I've actually jumped so far ahead because We'll talk about the play you played that. In, that was in New York City called "The Devil and Billy Markham." That was written yes. by by Shel oh, Silverstein. I'm sorry, man. I go all over. No, the no, that's me. That's me. I'm jumping all over. I've got like a million questions, and I'm trying to. No, ask. but this is how I think about my life. Yeah, exactly. This is how I think about my life. Sometimes I'll be sitting there quietly, and somebody will say, "You're quiet," and I'll say, "It's not quiet <laughs> where I am." <laughs> Good. You know what? Well, um, before I'll tell you a few things I want to touch on. Right. First of all, your your connection with Scotland and stuff. But I suppose just for the benefit, let's say for anyone who who isn't aware of the origins. So, what was the name of the band? Was it Pape them that like Ray Sawyer and stuff was in? Yeah, that wasn't anything I was involved. Yeah, that this, was that was see, prior Ray, to you joining. Ray and George and Billy were all 10, 12, 13 years older than me, and they'd been in bands down south. And one of them was that band, the Chocolate Papers. Chocolate Papers. And so everybody it. always talks about the Chocolate Papers as if it was the beginning of Doctor Hook. It was the beginning of what Ray was doing and George, but it it had nothing to do with Doctor Hook until mm-hmm. Ray and George wound up in New Jersey, and. Uh, we wound up playing in a bar and the you know the club owner said we need a name to put in the window so you know and that's how that happened george cummings came up with the name really briefly uh you know just quickly actually and they put it they put it in the window but you know that wasn't something we thought we'd be stuck with forever i mean we didn't even know if we'd know each other very long Mm -hmm. just we started having opportunities and we became friends in a band you know so I mean it wasn't before long that like, were you opening for like Alice Cooper and stuff like doing sort yeah. of support acts what was that like I mean that because you're saying you didn't think you were going to be doing it for long and then all of a sudden you're opening for this massive massive act in the states yeah yeah well that that was one of the first people we ever opened for was uh, Van Morrison Wow. And I loved Van Morrison. This was at Santa Rosa Community College in, in uh, Northern California. And uh, after our set, I saw him wandering around backstage and I rushed up to him and said, Mr. Morrison, and stuck my hand up. And he pulled in like a turtle and looked around like security. <laughs> you know I, mean? I found out in later years he's not the most personable person, but I felt like I hit him. I really did. I felt like I punched him. I felt so terrible. So I've always been kind of, uh, uh, you know, tentative about meeting people because, man, you don't want to meet your heroes and find out they're dickheads. You just, you just don't. And he wasn't being a dickhead. He was being Van Morrison. I yeah. didn't know. I was that enthusiastic kid that I would have shook him and said, love you, man. And he would have got the cops get there. I, you know? I, I get it. You feel like this sense of not ownership, but you're like, 
Yeah, me, you and I have got, we've got this thing, I listen to your music all the time and then you forget that that person doesn't actually, or perhaps doesn't know you. Is there anybody else? Or who, who were the people that you met over the years that were the opposite of that, that they just totally reaffirmed like your love and, and admiration for them? Well, you know, I went to uh, a wedding, Joe Brown, you know, Joe Brown, big rock and roll star over here yeah. forever, is a mate of mine. And I went to his wedding reception some years ago and George Harrison was his best man. Wow. And I, I'm a Beatles fan. I mean, if you came to my place and looked around, you'd think I was in the Beatles. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, no big, you know. And uh, I, I didn't want to meet him because I love the Beatles. I didn't want him to be and diss me. And, but he was lovely. It was great. It was life affirming. But I'll tell you something. I'm going to turn that around on me. Okay, I, I often wonder. It often takes me by surprise when someone will come up in the street and say, "Can we take a photo?" And I'm not being coy here, or making believe I don't understand what I've done or who I am. But my yeah. initial reaction is usually, "Why?" <laughs> not to them, to me. Yeah. And then I go, "Oh yeah, that's right." As a matter of fact, I have a picture of me and George Harrison that a woman took at that wedding reception and I was talking to him and she came over and said, I need to have a picture of my two favorite rock and roll people. And I actually stepped out of the way because I thought Elton John was probably there. <laughs> Paul McCartney standing behind you. I, yeah, I didn't think she meant me and George Harrison. I mean, that seemed like a stretch. But, but then, you know, so that picture just got taken. And to me, it's a picture of George Harrison. Yeah. I think, <laughs> you know, you know would, would you agree, and you're allowed to be somewhat self-indulgent here, but do you think that has been part of maybe in the UK with their affection towards you and towards Doctor Who in general that you, you very evidently haven't always taken yourself too seriously. There's a lot of humour in your music and in your performance and then maybe that just transfers into people's admiration for you. Yeah, I, I th one thing I always liked about being in Hook and travelling the world is that once we went someplace, I always felt like when we went back, they responded to us as people. Mm not chart toppers so much, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, before video and we were before video, uh, you had to be places. Now you send a film. Yeah. It used to be, if you put out a new single, everybody gets the video at the same time and it's mass organization. And yeah. now we used to go, okay, what, what record is out? Uh oh, that one. Okay. And so we would follow our hit records and play. And when you're in love with a beautiful woman, started to be a big hit in America and it wasn't doing much in the UK because we hadn't been here. And Ray and I came over and did just a little press thing and said, Hey, it's still us. And they re-released the record and it got right on the charts. And mm -hmm. we realized then that people were responding to us as people, yeah. not just a musical thing. And I think, you know, I can tell my audience now, my audience right now on this 50th anniversary tour is the original fans, their kids, their kids, and sometimes their kids. And, yeah. and most of those people, you know, two and a half of those generations don't know who we used to be, don't care what we look like. They just come because they liked the music. Yeah. But I'm not the kind of guy that wants to go out there and say, okay, there's your 25 songs. Thank you very much. Because I feel that all those years with those people that they keep coming back. It blows me away. Because again, I think of the transfer station. 
you know, and the drums, they used to go, you know, any country music? And we'd say, yes, sir, please don't hit us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's interesting to have done something that's lasted this long. And, you know, when you look at it and you look at the world, it's not changing anything. And the world is such a fucked up place. And it always has been. Everybody who just got here goes, boy, this is fucked up. But if you've been here for a while, it's been fucked up. The only reason it's more fucked up now is because you see it on social media and you hear it 24 hours a day. There's always been a problem. A problem was 11 o'clock news and then you woke up the next morning to see if you still had a problem. Now, if you have a problem on the 11 o'clock news, they show it to you all damn night. You know, so we're right in the middle of all that. And, you know, I guess if I can go out there for a couple of hours and make people think about their past, except, you know, you find out you really, people, it's a real tender thing because people don't want you to have gotten older because mm. that means they did. <laughs> the younger people don't really care, you know, they don't really care. They just want to hear that those records that they liked played the way they wanted to hear them. And that's what we do. Yeah, that's exactly it. I'm, I'm treading the line, like I'm third generation. So like my, my grandpa, my mom, my aunt, my uncles, they're the second generation, I'm the third, and now I'm passing on to like my younger cousins who are like five and six. I'm saying, here, listen to this and try to get them into it. And it's always the sort of same reaction, I think, when somebody new hears it. So say if it's like a party or something, like an after party, and I get entrusted with putting on the music at four in the morning, I'm going for like sexy eyes and sharing the night together. And at first, <laughs> at first people are like, mate, fuck off. And then I'm going, no, 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 just wait. And then they always go, it's either I love it or I know that song, I know that song, or, you know, it's somebody who's also a fan, if I can get some sort of kindred spirit um, and somebody that wants to listen to it. I mean, one of the ones that I would always go for, first of all, is Sylvia's mother. Now, yeah. So many questions, so many things to talk about. I didn't realise that that was actually released initially, maybe around 1970. Didn't do yeah. so well. But then in its, its second release, it just absolutely stormed the American Yeah, chart. it did well. It did well. You know, it climbed the charts in America really, really slowly. Uh, but Clive Davis, who was the head of CBS Records then, uh, um, Columbia, he liked the record. Yeah. And he worked it. He kept working it. I mean, when Sylvia's mother first came out, it went to number 99 in the Hot 100. Mm -hmm. And we were so freaking happy. <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> believe it because we were still playing in bars. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and it came out and we were so happy. And then it fell off the charts at number 99. And we thought, well, at least we've been on the charts. But Clive didn't let it go. And he worked it. And he worked it. And we went to radio stations. Those were the days, man. Ray and I used to go to radio stations unannounced. With an acoustic guitar, just yeah. go into the radio station and go into the booth and say, "Here we are," and the guy <laughs> on the air would go, "What are you doing?" Say, "They didn't tell you," you know. What I mean, we would like we would like force ourselves. You couldn't do that now. They beat you to death in the lobby. But yeah. we used to make our way onto radio stations, just wandering in and going, "Hey, do you hear a new record?" You know? you know what I think is amazing about that, right? The fact that it's what it. Climbed, I think. Um, now let's have a look. You sold a million copies. You, I mean, it charted. It was in. It was either number one, top five, top ten in all of these countries. So Australia, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, the UK, and the US. Now that is one that's utterly remarkable, right? But I have taken a note 
of some of the songs that you're up against and that you outperformed in that year of 1972. And this is for anybody who's perhaps isn't as aware of it as a, a super fan would be. David Bowie, Starman, Elton John, Rocketman, The Eagles, Take It Easy, Let's Stay Together by Al Green, American Pie by Don McLean, and Beautiful Sunday by Daniel Boone. Now there's countless others, but those are the ones I kind of went for because these are like, I play these songs every single day like on Marple Music, if I'm in the car. And Sylvia's mother is not only up there with those tracks, but is completely outperforming them. Like, what was the severity or the impact of your, and your mindset where you're thinking, yeah, we're playing these fucking bars and now we're up there with Elton John and David Bowie? No, we didn't really, you know, it's funny, man, because you don't see any of that stuff till you get older and you look back on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You look back on those footprints. And you go, wow, they go on forever. You know what I mean? Yep. But when you're doing it, when Sylvia's mother was number one, we all hugged each other and cried and thought, holy shit, now we have to do it again and we're over. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. We don't know how we did it the first time. It took, you know, it took us 30 years the first time. And now we had a couple of months to come up with another one. And so you don't, it's a constant struggle to reach forward, reach forward, reach forward. The 50th anniversary tour for me now, is uh it's a real celebration of all of it yeah it's a real celebration of all of it you know all the things you never i always try to explain to people like it looks like you have when you get to a certain point in your life and you have a greatest hits album and you're doing the greatest hits tour and you're doing it looks like you had a plan but all you really did was try to take advantage of whatever looked like was coming up. The flowers were coming up, like you said earlier. And that's why I said I was a chancer. I was the kind of guy that went, okay, yeah, let's go with that. And luckily it rubbed off on people because after Sylvia's mother was a big hit, we'd put out Carry Me Carry as a second single, but they weren't playing it on radio. I think it was too serious. It was about a homeless guy. So the label immediately scrapped it and put out Cover Rolling Stone, which didn't even sound like the same band. Sylvia's mother's the guy who was out on the ledge who's going to kill himself yeah. and cover Rolling Stone sound like a bunch of guys that didn't even know what day it was. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and, that, and you know what I mean? So it was very, it was sort of like it's because we we would we got in just in the period of time where people weren't saying, Oh, you can't do that. You know, mm. if they started by doing that, there'd be no Beatles, there'd be no Stones, where everybody was taking a chance. Yeah. But everybody was going, yeah, maybe you can do that. Maybe you can do that. But then when it became more about money, then everybody was looking at every good idea as if mm. it was a money-making idea. Because not every good idea creatively is a money-making idea, you know? Sometimes yeah. it's just worth being on the planet. <laughs> you just have to create it. It's funny when you say that about... Uh, Sylvia's mother, Carrie me, Carrie, and then cover of the Rolling Stone. They do sound, and then if you add in everybody's making it big, but me, you're like these are yeah. fucking diff- These are like multiple different bands. I have to give a very quick mention. Uh, Suzanne Carmichael, somebody very close to me. Carrie me, Carrie is her favorite song, and uh, I think in just in all existence. So she would kill me if I didn't mention her name there and and say that. So okay. anything, anything, no good. You got good taste, Suzanne. That's a great great song you know we stopped we obviously took it out of the set when it, it, they t- pulled it off the air 
And we used to play it sometimes, but uh, let it go for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because we had hits that we could concentrate, things that were actually on the radio. But Carry Me Now with the 50th anniversary, I tell people every night, I don't know how the hell you would celebrate Dr. Hook's 50 years without doing Carry Me, Carry. Because yeah. it has been one of the most impactive songs to people. Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a big hit. And it's maybe not well known. You know, the thing about Hook, the thing about Hook is people either go, I, I don't care about Dr. Hook. Because we changed so much that they didn't even want to bother figuring us out. That every time <laughs> they heard us, we were doing something else. And so it's either I don't care about them at all, or I take a bullet for these guys. I mean, it really is this kind of all in or... You know, nah, not really, not not everybody's taste. But, you know, it, if you were everybody's taste, it means you're doing something wrong. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You have to be, I always say, with your creative output, just be true to yourself and, and the people that are meant to join you on that journey will find you. And the ones that don't, then they don't matter, to be honest, is yeah. kind of how I see it. Um, I have to apologise on behalf of the, the British public and, it's quite often the British public let me down, but they did it again in 1972 when fucking Donny Osmond, a good song, right? But Donny Osmond, Poppy Love was the one that got to number one. Uh, instead of what? Instead of Sylvia's mother, sorry. Oh, jeez, sure. I couldn't have cried any more than I did on Sylvia's I mother. Know. So if Puppy Love is sadder to people, then I guess I've yeah, learned something exactly. right there. But I believe in Scotland you would have been number one and you do have a great relationship with, with Scottish audiences in general. Um, this is what I loved, right? This is how you described the Scottish audience. You said Scottish audiences review every song. You never get up there for very long without knowing how you're doing. Did they just oh, yeah. give you this immediate feedback? Every time, every time. And the, and the longer it goes on, you know, you come back and you really feel like you're coming to see friends again. And the other thing I always said about Scottish audiences, because they're so demonstrative, is if they don't like it, they'll kill you. But if they do like you, they might kill you by accident trying to uh, give you a hug. You know, I mean, death by affection. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's Scott. I I don't even know how to uh, describe Scottish audiences. They've been one of the most loyal fan bases for Hook ever. I mean, we used to, you know, go over and play the Apollo, you know, the great Apollo in Glasgow, mm-hmm. and. Uh, sell that place out. I mean, we got a couple of awards for attendance records at the Apollo while we were still not doing that great in America, you know? And uh, a book came out about the Apollo, uh, I don't know, about 10, 15 years ago. And I got the book and somebody sent it to me. And in it, there's pictures of Rod Stewart, there's pictures of Paul McCartney and Wings, and there's pictures of Dr. Hook. Mm. And I thought, man, you know, we show up in the strangest places without knowing it yeah without knowing it you know i mean we you you can't be everywhere but it's lovely when all of a sudden you find out that people have been paying attention to you yeah somewhere that you know i'm a guy from new jersey i don't wake up every day and wonder how many people in sweden love me (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) you can't you can't live your life like that but it's amazing to find out you know uh, what you've actually achieved and again you find out later in life by looking back on it. You're not always told and you're not always aware of it. It's a blur. Mm-hmm. You're moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. You know? You're know, you essentially, you are honorary Scottish royalty and, and somebody else who really is a, a king of Scotland is Billy Connolly. Now, people yeah. 
people will be surprised to find out that Billy opened for you on tour. Like, what are your memories of, of him being around? You know, this is weird because I don't remember it. Oh, really? No, no. And I, I don't know Billy well, but mm -hmm. Billy's one of those guys, if you met him twice, you know him pretty well. I mean, he's just, Dennis, you know what I mean? He's one yes. of those guys that makes you feel like you've known him forever. And I haven't seen him for a while. And But, you know, in his book, he said he opened for us. And I don't really remember where, it, I don't think, it, it couldn't have been a tour. It must have been a gig or so. It yeah. couldn't have been a tour. Because if it was a tour, we would have we would have became buddies. Yeah, <laughs> I that, we would have hung around a lot. And, that's, you know, that's a definitely a good point. Because I think he says he was opening up for for people like Elvis Costello and Dr. Hook. And at the same time, he was supporting Elton John in his Rocketman tour while he was playing a, a, a like a run of nights at the right. uh, Ma Madison Square Garden. But he he was saying, so at that point, he was doing like this blend of comedy and folk music. Right. And he said there was no comedy clubs. And the thing that made me laugh, he said he was opening up and he read uh, Tom Waits speaking in Rolling Stone magazine, actually, funnily enough. And he said, opening for a rock band is a nightly exercise in terror. And he's saying, like, yeah, that's, that's like exactly exactly what he'd gone through. I don't know if you know this. You know Billy lives in, in Florida Keys? No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So he lives My next place to live is where Shell lived. Too. Well, that is what I was going to say. So he lives next door to the house that Shell Silverstein owned. Wow. Wow. That's funny. I've been in that house. Have so you? I've been right next door to the house Billy lives in. So, you know, I, I've written some songs with Shell and worked on that play with Shell in yeah. that house in Key West. You know, it's funny that how those wee things go through. And you know, Shell Shell Silverstein is is somebody we should definitely speak about. So he he was like a popular author and songwriter. He wrote for both children and adults. He was a a writer, a cartoonist for Playboy magazine. He, he wrote a boy named Sue for Johnny Cash, and then he wrote a whole. Not your entire back catalogue, because you know you guys wrote your own things as well. But he wrote he wrote a lot of songs for you. Like, oh would, yeah, would Doctor Hook just wouldn't be what it is without the influence of Shell Silverstein? No, it? no. As a matter of fact, it was Shell that actually said to us after about two and a half albums, "You guys are writing some good songs. You should start recording them, or you're <laughs> going to think people are going to think you're just a mouthpiece for me." You know. I mean, he was generous that way. He wasn't. He wasn't like, "Oh, I keep doing my songs. I'm making a lot of money." He was like, "Start doing your own stuff." But you know, the funny thing, taking it back to the bar days. In the bar days, we would do funny songs. We would do parody of songs. We would do all sorts of stuff to keep people sweet because they yeah. were drinking. And so we we used to do, you know, a dirty version of Proud Mary or uh, or something else. And and so the personality that Hook had was given voice mm -hmm. by the personality Shell's writing had. You know, because one of the reasons people liked us in bars is because we would do some dirty version of a, of a hit song and then I, we do a BG, I started a joke or I shall be released, some ballads. And, and it was always either ridiculous or heartbreaking. We were yeah. doing that anyway, just with songs we were culling from the jukebox and stuff. And Shell's material gave us a, a voice for the personalities we already had. Because yeah. the band had that image on stage, but we were playing covers. And so when Shell gave us Sylvia and Rolling Stone, Freaking at the Freaker's Ball, songs like that, that became the music 
to the personalities we were walking around with anyway. It was a really interesting combination and really kind of serendipitous to tell you the truth. Yeah. No, I mean, now that I reflect on it, and that's an interesting point you say about the the multiple like the multiple dimensions and facets of everybody in the band's personality. And maybe that is what people attach to as well, because there's the humor, there's just the uplifting, fun songs, but then there are the ones of total heartbreak or loneliness or like on the cusp of romance and it's like it represents all these different pockets of everybody you know everyday life yeah and and when and when we hit the mid 70s and we were still together then that's when people who were interested in selling things said to us make up your mind mm-hmm. what are what are, what are you gonna you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna smile or you're gonna frown you know, you're going to be serious in photographs or you're going to smile. So, well, how about a little of both? I mean, yeah. You know, because I figured if one man could write Freaker's Ball and carry me carry, then one man could sing it. Yeah. You know, that was my personality for Freaker's Ball, the drunk at a party. I know how that goes, you know, yeah. and then carry me carry. So they gave me, uh, they gave me shell songs, uh, I was blessed with shell songs because they gave me an opportunity to be an actor mm-hmm. through the music, tell a story. Not, you know, Sexy Eyes was a good record, but it didn't say much. It didn't say anything about me. I never met a girl on a dance floor in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a dancer, you know, but it was a good record, good yeah, radio record, you know, but shells things were personal when you sang a shell song people imagine that's how you felt you know yeah we will talk about in sylvia's mother um again in more detail because i know you've told this story a million times but you and i think this will shock people so i want to drop this like a bombshell sylvia and her mother are two real people or were two real people perhaps and you've you know you've you've met sylvia don't think you yeah. met her mother don't think you met no. her mother um, but the thing I wanted oh, to ask, she probably would have slapped me if I met her mother. She probably oh yeah, you made, you made her sound bad. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny because Shell told us when he wrote that song that it was about, you know, someone he knew. Yeah, and uh, we took that as gospel because that you know Shell wouldn't say that. And then uh, after the record been out for a long, long time, uh, I was. Uh, in Nashville at home, and I got a call from a, a Dutch radio, a TV station. And they were doing an end-of-the-year wrap-up. You know how they'll do the 200 greatest singles? Yeah. And Sylvia's mother was in there somewhere. And some of them, as they presented them, they had little films about them. And they called me and they said they wanted me to come over and be on the show. It was a live show. Because Sylvia's mother was, I don't know, number 28 or whatever. So I went over and they said they had a surprise for me. And while I was sitting there live on TV, they showed a film and there was this very old woman. And I was told that someone in the crew knew someone who actually knew Sylvia's mother, Mm. knew that woman. And she lived in Wisconsin. And here's a film of her. And here's this old woman, got to be in the 90s, and she's saying, I don't think I was as rude as they said I was. And <laughs> she's still disputing the song 25 years later. And, and I'm looking at this woman and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is, I've been singing about her for yeah. 30 years. And then, because it was Christmas time when they filmed this, Sylvia was visiting. 
Because she lived in Mexico. Yeah. And she leans into the frame. And there's Sylvia and her mother. And I've said it before, and I hate to repeat myself, but I don't know how else to say it. It was like looking at Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. It was like these two legendary people, legendary in my life. You know what I mean? And and Shell was already gone. He'd already passed on. And, and I'm looking at these two people. And then I had lunch in London with Sylvia. Wow. And I wasn't even sure I wanted to. I wasn't, I didn't know how I was going to approach that. It was almost like when I said I met George Harrison. I didn't want her, I didn't want her to be weird. I wanted us to get along because I'd been representing her, <laughs> her, her history and I don't even know the one. And we wrote back and forth for a while. But yeah, so there was really a, I don't know how many people that would ever happen to. I know it happens to actors all the time. Yeah. That they play someone and then they meet that person. But to sing about someone and such an opinionated song, too, about, about her mother. And so, yeah, that was really weird. I love full circle stuff, man. I really do like when it comes around full circle. Me too, mate. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I mean, was, was Sylvia, was she, was she warm with you? How did she feel about being represented in a song for so many years? She, she didn't say a lot about the song, you know, but she said, she called Shell Shelley because mm. they were kids. The last yeah. time they'd seen each other very young. And she knew that he'd written songs, but she didn't know that he'd written plays. And I had been in one. And so I knew stuff about Shell that she didn't because she'd lost touch with him. And she yeah. knew stuff about Shell that happened before I ever met him. So it was an interesting conversation. I don't know what we would have talked about if it wasn't for Shell, because <laughs> she was probably in a unique situation too, thinking, you know, I don't have any songs that people have been singing about me for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. What what I really want people to know as well is so Sylvia, she was on her way to Mexico to marry what was a bullfighter. He, That's he was, what Shell said, yeah. Yeah, he was a bullfighter. And she was saying, and again, like, you know, when she she was explaining um what was going on when this phone call from Shell came in and she said like her family weren't happy that she was going off to be married in some mad scenario and Shell's called in the middle of some chaos and maybe her mum's on the phone and she's like yeah no that's it it's kind of over and you know I suppose we'll never know did Shell embellish it or is Sylvia downplaying it but either way I don't think I want to know I think I like it just the, the way it is. Shell said to me one time, he said, you know, sometimes when you're writing from real experience, you have to beef the song down. You mm -hmm. don't beef it up. You beef it down. I mean, how the hell was he going to get in there that she's getting in a cab to go see a bullfighter? Exactly. You know I mean? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he said, sometimes you got to trim it a little bit to make it stand up. You know what I mean? So trim he did. It's amazing. Like, just imagine having had that song written about you and, and just that that's always because she would have heard it countless times she could have been in taxis and the taxi driver's like i love this song do you mind if i put it up like i'm sure there's loads of these wee scenarios and it's just always been in her head and she's therefore like just inextricably linked to you um i, I was laughing at this it's not like the BBC to be very stuffy, but when you released the cover of the Rolling Stone, they were refusing to play it because they said it was an advert for the magazine. And so Well, yeah, but they used to they had real strict stuff like that. As a matter of fact, you know, yeah, I always I always liken it to when uh the Kinks and Ray Davis had out Lola. 
Mm. The song Lola, and that was a big hit, and they started playing it on the BBC, and there was a line in there that just like Coca-Cola. And the BBC thought Ray Davis was selling Coca-Cola. So he had to fly back from America to an English studio and record just like Cherry Cola. Ah. So they would play it. So it was befalling other people. But you know the cool thing about Cover Rolling Stone, when they wouldn't play it on the BBC, uh, Columbia Records, CBS, had a phone number that you could call, a clandestine phone number that you could call and hear it. And I thought, oh, my God, it's almost like pop porn. You know what I mean? <laughs> have to call, so I have to call some porn line to hear the yeah, yeah. cover Rolling Stone because it said cocaine, Katie, and we take all kind of pills. Yeah, Those were the yeah. lines that were like, oh, no, you know. But they didn't even care about the pills and the cocaine. It was the Rolling Stone because every time you see the words Rolling Stone in that context, it has a little trademark next to it. Ah, yeah. And right. they're not, if it's a trademark, I, I don't know how it goes with the BBC now. You know, we had a lot of problems with stuff. You know, when a little bit more came out, you know, it was a lovely ballad. It was a big hit all over the world. And the first line, when your body's had enough of me and you're laying flat out on the floor, we did it on a big American TV show when that was a hit. And they made us change it to, and when you've had enough of me, because the word body was gonna, when your body's had enough, that was like, you know, and again, more porn, you know what I mean? Yeah. When you've had enough of me. And I thought, well, that makes it sound like she's just sick to death of you when you've, <laughs> yeah. had, when you've had enough of me. And you're laying on the floor. That's a different scene. <laughs> that's like she fainted because you were so boring. Yeah. You know, don't, me- don't mess with a man's up. Nah, it's funny when you that people pick on a man. It ain't getting better, is it? No, it ain't getting better. No, we would have been canceled. Not. We would have been canceled so many times. <laughs> oh, you you would never have made it out of that transfer station. You would just st- you'd still be playing there just now. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say no, I wouldn't, but I can't tell you that. I can't tell you that for certain. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm laughing at the thought of like some kid, some 14 year old kid, getting ordered down the stairs to to find out why the phone bill's sitting at 400 pounds because he just keeps phoning to listen to the cover of the Rolling Stone on the the clandestine phone line. Hey, the um, phone had a lot to do with our career. Sylvia's mother wouldn't be a hit now because. All kids would be going, what, what do you mean? My dad pays my phone bill. What's this 40, <laughs> cent, what's this 40 cents thing? Is, you it know true, I mean? is it true that people used to throw 40 cents at you from the, the audience when you sang yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. You know, getting hit with a in the cheek with a, an American quarter from the balcony is not fair. <laughs> what, was the, what was the TV show that featured Sylvia's mother quite recently? Uh, I think somebody told me it, and I, I think um, I'm, oh, it's I'm Fargo. Uh, Fargo, Fargo. That's yeah, it. there was, and it was. I, I only saw the scene, and it was weird. He's it's like very in the weird. car, maybe. He's like in the car driving or something in the song. Yeah, but on the radio. somebody, somebody's dead, and somebody's in a payphone, and you know. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. That's the thing. Music, I always thought, was open to that kind of interpretation. Mm-hmm. You know, put it wherever, put it, it, juxtapose it to something, make it opposite. It's one I never, and I'm going to sound like an old guy here, but it's one I never really appreciated when videos came in. Because the video now, that's how this song looks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Forever. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. It's the road, the vase with the rose in it going over slowly and shattering. That's what you see. You're not, you're supposed to see whatever you see when you hear music. Mate, that is, that is you know? an amazing point because that, so I would have first heard your music 93, 90, well, I mean, I, I was born in 1990, so I would have been hearing it all the time, but my first memories are like, 93, 94, and I had all these images in my head. Like, this might sound weird for you, right? But I didn't know what you looked like until I was no, like... No, right, of course. Un- until I was, like, 16. And I just, I pictured just every, even all the little conversational parts of the song. Like, I've, I had my own little video. So now when I see the Sylvia's Mother video, I'm like, I don't recognise that as, that's not what I, that just isn't what I pictured. Um, no, no, it never and is. And I like that. And I, I like it, it that I have is. my own versions. It never is. That's I. I thought you know. I get it. I get it. It's another medium selling the material, but it really freezes it somewhere. You know, yeah. it freezes it somewhere. But it, you know, time rolls on. There's nobody who gets to a certain age that doesn't say, "Now, why the hell are they doing it like that now?" It yeah. just changes. It just changes. You know. But I always did think that music was there to conjure images, mm-hmm. and once you painted a certain color. You know, it's like uh, Garth Brooks years ago had a song called The Thunder Rolls. And it's just about a guy cheating on his woman and she's getting tired of it. In the video, he comes home to her standing there with a shotgun and they leave it up to you as to whether she shot him or not. And that song became, oh, play that song where she shoots her husband. She doesn't shoot her husband in the song. It's just a storm of cheating song. She shoots him in the video. (laughs) You know, and and if you listen to the song, it doesn't conjure up a murder at home. (laughs) But the video does. You know, and I thought, well, okay. But you know something? I'm going to take a little of it back and I'm going to say, because somebody asked me the other day if MTV, because Dr. Hook, had our biggest hits after MTV kind of started charging. You know, when when we put our baby makes a blue jeans talk, Mm -hmm. we had a video for that. And now MTV wanted 25 grand or something. And the label didn't want to pay it because they used to just play videos as a promotional consideration. They'd get them for free. The labels were happy for them to play it and they were happy to get them. Now it was a money-making thing. And somebody said to me the other day, do you think MTV would have helped Dr. Hook, you know, along the way? And my response was it would have helped me personally because there were so many songs that I sang that people would see a fast picture of the band and it was called Dr. Hook and the blah, blah, blah. And there was a guy with an eye patch. And so everybody would immediately go. So the guy with the eye patch is singing everything. Yeah, they're thinking it's and that was a rub. That was a thing between me and Ray. Always, we understood it, but but if we had MTV, then yeah, people would have clearly saw that's what Ray does. That's the guy that was singing the thing. You know what I mean? So it would have helped me, but it wasn't there. It wasn't there. Yeah, that, that's the misconception a lot of people have that Ray Sawyer was the main. He was a lead singer, and in fact, he was a like a percussionist. He obviously featured prominently in, in certain songs but uh, it was you yet I've never considered that it makes a lot of sense no well but it, it if you don't see it yeah, if you exactly. don't see it you know if you don't see it uh you, you only know we were a band that had a look and we were a band that had a sound yeah unfortunately and fortunately 
the person who had the look and the person who had the sound were not the same person. (laughs) You know what I mean? And once we started releasing things with me singing it, Sylvia's mother, that was me, cover Rolling Stone was Ray and all of us. Then next single we had really was only 16. That was me. A little bit more. That was me. If not you, that was me. Sharing the night. And radio started to, you know, I had a radio friendly voice, I was told. So we used it. You know, Ray, unfortunately, was in a terrible car accident and had that eye patch. But he was willing to use that as a promotion. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? So we all, whatever people remembered, and I was just the guy that had the recognizable voice. So we rolled with it. And it's a good thing some of us, you know, it's a good thing we had anything that they wanted to play on the radio because we all want to be on the radio. You know, when we kind of played, started playing more radio-friendly music and people would go, oh, Dr. Hook went disco. And I try to explain to people, you know, so did the Rolling Stones. So did Rod Stewart. We all wanted to be on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> we well, all had to make some concessions. Yeah, you exactly. Know. I mean, it's not as if you're completely compromising or changing your entire style, but you have to, as, as Darwinism exists and everything from physically, you know, everyday life to entertainment, if you don't evolve, if you don't sort of develop as the time goes on, then you, you can sort of be left behind. I think you struck the balance perfectly between keeping your identity and your, your style while kind of, as you say, pr- providing what has to be um what has to be put out there or released for an order yeah. to be on radio and t- to remain. Well, but that's why that's why I said I thought it was important that people got to know us as people. Yeah. Because when we changed, they went, oh, then it's got a haircut. Not who's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Y- you know what I mean? Because they knew who we were. They knew us as people. And, it, you know, look at anybody's driver's license. The old driver's license, you look like one of the Manson family. Then the later driver's license, it cleans up. <laughs> Then the later, you know what I mean? We we all go through, you know, if I walked out on stage now in that long coat with a long beard and hair, sweaty, people would think, oh, so he's crazy. <laughs> I thought that I thought he was just in showbiz, but he's actually crazy. <laughs> yeah, he's nuts. I mean, God, look at um, the evolution of Queen and Freddie Mercury. Is that not the, the perfect example of David Bowie? Like, you think, you know, things change. You do develop as time goes on. That's that's what get Elton John, for God's sake. That's where longevity comes from. It comes from that constant, yeah, personal evolution. Well, you know, this people say to me all the time, it's funny you say David Bowie, because people will say to me, I have a standard line when people say, is it true that Dr. Hook were always stoned out of their minds? And I say, yes, and David Bowie is actually from Mars. <laughs> I mean, come on, folks. Come on, folks. You yeah. can't, you know, if you, it, it's like, <laughs> let some of it go let some of it go because it rolls along naturally it's kind of organic if you like. <laughs> yeah but you know what i mean because it all it all happened at a certain point mm-hmm. but you're right if you didn't change people would go well, and then you, when boy george happened yeah. Everybody was going, oh, where is he going to go with that? With that hat and the long braids and the blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, what did Bowie do? He took off the three hands and the orange hair and he put on a suit. Yeah. He put on a three-piece fucking suit <laughs> and went out and sang this ashes to ashes. You know what I mean? He didn't look like a demented clown. He sang it in a suit. 
<laughs> you exactly. just, if you change it, people will know what happened to you. You know what I mean? With one question that's just sprung to mind, just as we're discussing like that evolution and fans continuing with you on that journey, and this is a very tabloidy podcasty question, but with such a large fan base, it, there's going to be then a crossover of people that you're a fan of. Like, is there anyone that sticks out where you thought, oh my God, I can't believe this guy's a fan of ours, or this woman's a fan of ours, I love him or her? Oh, you mean other people in the business? Basically, yeah. It's happened all along, all along. When we, we released uh, The Ballad of Lucy Jordan mm-hmm. on CBS, it was our last release on, on CBS. It was a single. It went nowhere because we were leaving the label. They just threw it on the back of the best-known album or something. And Marianne Faithful had a number one international hit with it. Mm-hmm. And I met her at Top of the Pops when she had that hit. And I said to her, how did you know that song? And she said, I bought your record. (laughs) Like, what are you, an idiot? And I thought, (laughs) oh, yeah, that's right. It's it's released, you know. And I was amazed. And and Elvis Costello, big fan of Elvis Costello's. And in the late 70s, I was in Nashville, and him and the attractions were playing in town. And I stayed on and got in a queue for four hours the night before to get Elvis Costello tickets. And I was wondering, just wondering, I wonder where they're staying in town. And that morning I was leaving my hotel to go to the studio and they were packing their gear in the, in the parking lot. <laughs> and I thought, he's right here. And I started to walk to him. And as I was walking towards him, thinking, what can I say to this guy? He turned around to me and he went, hey, I know you. And he came up and the band said, I'm always taken aback when fucking people know me. <laughs> I yeah. really am. And I know that must sound coy. But Elvis Costello had no reason to know me. But that's happened to me always in my life, where you find out one of the Sex Pistols, he loves you guys. You know, I think, what? Somebody told me Steve Jones, you know, from the Sex Pistols. You don't know that stuff, man. You never fucking know who's watching. You never know. And Marianne Faithful tells me, well, I bought your record. Mick and I came to see you guys at the Rainbow. I'm so glad I didn't know Mick Jagger was in the audience tonight. He was there. That is unbelievable, isn't it? That is incredible. Yeah, but you don't know that shit. You don't know. You know? Well, see, I'm saying that's unbelievable because I'm sitting talking to here when I'm sitting in a room and you're like in a kitchen, but it's not unbelievable in the slightest. Like everybody listening to this will be like, no, that is completely believable, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it is also insane when you, when you think about it. I'm almost, almost certain Elton John mentions you in his latest biography. Yeah, we never met him. Well, no. I, got, I have so much respect for Elton John. Yeah. I mean, this guy's been major in every decade since he started. Oh, yeah. You know, so. you can't, you can't, uh, you can't fault that. I mean, it's just been, uh, you know, and an interesting life. And he's one of those guys that, you know, one of the reasons everybody still knows and loves Elton John is because he's put his life out there for you to know about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the thing that just happened with Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp just went, yeah, look, here's me. This is me in all my mess. Mm -hmm. Judge it if you want to, but I didn't hit anybody. You know what I mean? And sometimes you got to show them the mess, Mm. you know, so that the clean areas look even cleaner. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's human. People relate to fallibility, don't they? They, they see yeah, it in themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, so much success for so many years, you know, hit after hit after hit, which are all obviously featured in the 50th anniversary tour. And you get to like 
was it 1985? Was that when you did the farewell tour? Was that just, had you decided, you know, fuck's sake, 300 days a year, all over the planet, 15 years, like it's time for a break or time for a change? Yeah, I, Ray had, Ray had, you know, things were really changing. We were sort of having to look for another record label because we wound up, we wound up si- signing with a, a, a European company phonogram which was a great company but in america that translated to casablanca records Mm. and if anybody knows anything about casablanca records that was doomed from the beginning that was like all the payola stuff and all the you know dumping records in the river and saying they sold them i mean it just became a whole big it became a whole big scandal not our records but it became a big scandal and they weren't about to pay for us you know so we were we were in a label we would have had to really overhaul a lot of stuff ray had left ray had left the band because he didn't want to be dr hook anymore quite honestly he wanted to be ray sawyer so he left and so i took the band around the world for another year and i put it down in 1985 and it was uh I just thought i've been doing it since i was 19 and i just thought there has to be something else and if there's nothing else, let me find that out. Yeah. You know, and I did a play, a one-man play of shells, and I wrote songs for other people. And there was a life. There was a life after Dr. Hook. I just decided to do this 50th anniversary tour because here we are at 50 years. Could you, know? you have, I mean, 30, 37 years ago, could you have possibly anticipated that the popularity of the music would just go on in the way it has because this is this is rare. I think this is something that is reserved only for the the top of the tree, of which I absolutely include you and in, in the Doctor Hook back catalogue. But could you see that coming back then? No, 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 no. You don't even know what's a hit, you know, until mm. it's a hit. But uh, no, it's interesting. You know, it's funny because about. I, I say everything was a couple of years ago, even if it was 20 or 30. <laughs> yeah. But about 10 years ago now, maybe a little less, Universal Music had had acquired the Dr. Hook catalog. And they called me and said, we'd like to put out a comprehensive compilation mm. of two CDs with about 40 tracks on it. And we hear you're the guy to do it. Will you help us put it together and sequence it, pick the tracks? And so I did. And what we did was we picked the first CD was all popular songs. And the second CD was all songs that I thought should have got more attention or that might direct people to the actual albums. Mm -hmm. And so we put that out and it was called Timeless. And we put that out. But while I was sequencing the album and putting them together, I realized that Hook had not recorded the same song over and over. You know what I mean? We'd done a lot of different kinds of music. And as I was putting the album together, part of my brain was thinking, wow, this would make an interesting fucking show. Because it's (laughs) not 126 beats a minute for an hour and a half and you go home. It goes all over the place. You laugh, you cry, it's country, it's dancey, it's rock, it's all sorts of stuff. And I was only like sequencing a set in my head. And then the album did well. And I said to my manager, I think we need to do the 50th. Yeah. 2019 is, is 50 years. And I think we need to celebrate it. Now, of course, I got ill. 
had a kidney thing and I got ill and had to come off the road. We had 74 shows booked all around the world. They were starting to sell out a year ahead of time and I had to cancel everything. So that broke my heart. And in the last year or so, we've been picking up dates in the UK and in Scandinavia and stuff just to honor this 50th anniversary thing. But we've had to start it three times because mm -hmm. the first time I got ill and then about nine months later, COVID hit and everybody got ill <laughs> or everybody got told to stay home. And so I've been trying to do this 50th anniversary tour for three years. And now we're doing the end of it this this year. You know, and it's uh, it's strange. You never know until you look back. But that's what I said when I was sequencing that. I thought this would make a great show. And I have such a great band. I mean, Dr. Hook now, the band is just there's nothing they can't play. There's nothing they can't sing. And, you know, my job has changed. There were nights in 1976 when I was out on stage about to sing a little bit more for the first time. Or in 1971 was about to sing Sylvia's Mother for the first time and thinking, shit, I hope they like this. <laughs> now the show is songs wall to wall that I know they like. Yeah. And the reason I know they like them is because I'm still here <laughs> yeah, you know. and they still want to see me. So there's a little bit of a luxury in that. Yeah. And knowing before you even leave home that you can hardly fashion a bad set out of, the, out of the catalog we have, you know, and that's lovely. And people take it to heart, man. People take it to heart. And I refuse to let them take it more seriously than I do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They take it to heart. I see, I started playing Carry Me Carry the other night. There was a woman standing in front of the stage and I said, we're going to do Carry Me Carry. And when I said that, she just fell straight back on her back with her arms open and laid there on the floor till the song was over. It's like, oh, my goodness. You know, and it, it may I, it, I may lose that because it's me and I'm here and I live it all the time. But when you see that it means so much to somebody, fuck, man, you can't you can't really turn your back on that. You can't turn your nose up at that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that woman is me and, and everybody else um, for, for so many tracks. Um, I think the main thing you're saying about the being unwell, the main thing is that you're, you're well and that you're feeling fit. You're looking fit. You're looking great. Um, God, if the 2017, 2018 and then October 2021 show in Kelvin Grove is anything to go by, you know, this weekend is just going to be, be just as incredible. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I lose my shit every time. At every track, though, and eventually people are like, well, if I take, so I had a friend with me, and he's like, like, surely you're going to stop reacting like that? And I'm like, nah, <laughs> like, it's just going to be this for every song. Actually, a funny story I meant to tell you this earlier, and this kind of, you know, you say, like, you don't want to ever interact with somebody who you're a real fan of in case they turn out to be a dickhead. And I remember being at a party in April 2013, and it was like, it was getting, it was getting later, it was getting early, whoever you want to look at it, it's like 6 a.m., and uh, I kept playing your music and going on and on and on. And my friend sort of tongue-in-cheek was like, oh, well, you shut the fuck up. Like, just email him, like, message him if you want to put, get this across. So I did, so I emailed you, and you came straight back to me, like, almost instantly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> then my mate was I'm like... I'm so lonely. I'm so lonely. I, know. So I have must... no life. I'm waiting for the phone to ring. I know, I know. <laughs> and, uh, but then my mate... So I then didn't shut the fuck up about that, and my mate was like, why did I tell him to send this email? Because <laughs> it was just all, all I wanted to kind of talk about. But, um, yeah, and that... They're in that email exchange 
or that woman um, responding that way to carry me carry just kind of I think that just sums it up completely what the music means to people and it's yeah it's been amazing to have this conversation to ask these questions just to get your this your thoughts on on these songs that have carried me through my whole life even god even i'm now in i'm in doctor hook mode because i'm coming in friday so driving through glasgow yesterday windows down it was a the one fucking sunny day we get every six months yeah and um i was playing i think it was when you're in love with a beautiful woman so then there's people like all going past shouting in the car and it's just this i it's um it's 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 been an incredible thing to to have with me through my whole life actually with that being incredible, I have to keep this in mind. I have to give an extra special mention for a pal of mine, uh, Greg Grant, and his his beloved dad, who's no longer with us, and he always says that your music is one of the greatest gifts that his dad ever gave him, and that you know that remains with him till this day. Like it's incredible. Man, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, my friend. Uh, it's that it's that family thing. Seriously, it's that family thing that I've heard my whole life. That. We used to go camping and we used to listen to Dr. Hook all the way, our yeah. families. And we used to sing. It's that thing. It's that family thing. And I don't hear that a lot about, you know, but I see on Twitter, just got two tickets, just got tickets from my mom, dad, me and my sister. And I absolutely love that they're all, you know what I mean? That nobody along the way went, well, that's corny. I don't want to, you know, because a lot of times you don't want to listen to what your mother listened to. I did. <laughs> I did this well. Look, I recorded what my mother listened to. You know? <laughs> yeah. But but it's amazing when I still hear, and you just said it to me again. It's there's a history. It's not just oh, I like that record. It, there's a reason why people like it. They yeah. they listen to that song and it bring it takes them somewhere. Yeah. It takes it. them somewhere, man, and that's flattering. That's flattering as hell for a guy from New Jersey to hear. You know, this hit me. Some I'm in a other part of the world, and this hits me like that. It's just amazing. It's hard to comprehend. It really is because mm. you can say you designed it that way, and you can say that's what you meant. But when you're in there in the studio singing it, you're just hoping you're in fucking key, man. Yeah. You're not thinking it's going to save anybody's life or make somebody's picnic. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're really not. You're just trying to do, you know, what you can do and do it right. And when it works. You go on and try to do it again. <laughs> yeah, I think you do it perfectly. I think it's and you're saying it's singing in key, but you give these songs life, and it's you know anybody can sing a song, but not everybody can give it that life. Like um, God, even me and my friend again, he, he'll kill me if I don't say his name. Dean Curry, we are going to Ibiza in two weeks. Now, this is yeah. Ibiza. You, you you get the Ibiza vibe. You fucking can guarantee in our room it's just going to be Doctor Hook that will be playing for <laughs> the entire weekend. Everybody will be like, "Fucking avoid those guys' room." I don't know what they're listening to. <laughs> well, then why are they coming to Kelvin Grove if everybody else is avoiding us? I know. Yeah. I know. No, it's, so I, funny. it's funny, you know. It's something about seventies music right now. Times have changed, and now you know when you used to listen to oldies radio uh, in the last ten years. It was a lot of 70s music. And yeah. now all these radio, because it's gone on 10 years, is 80s music. Yeah. And yeah. so 70s acts sell a lot. They down, they, you know, a lot of music gets downloaded of 70s groups. Mm -hmm. But a lot of 70s bands and stuff like that put out new albums and nobody gives a shit. Because it's a certain period. People want to remember a certain period of their lives, man. And, you know, if that's what you did, that's what you did. 
And if, it, if it's a good memory, why would you not want to be part of that? You know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, I, for one, can't wait to make new memories that you're showing Friday. All the best for, Thanks, for that on Friday and Saturday and for every other um, date that you've got coming up. Dennis, I've um, I've interviewed some some cool people. The the first minister of Scotland follows me on Twitter. That's a wee claim to fame. <laughs> um, you know, I've met some some amazing people, people and fans of. But this is by far and away just the has been the ultimate interview for me. And I can't Thanks, thank you. Thanks, Nancy. Enough. How would I have known that? You think I was sitting here waiting? Boy, is he going to be thrilled? <laughs> you know what I mean? Again, I was hoping. I hope I don't fuck this up. <laughs> no, it's been it's been incredible. When I'm asked as well, I was always asked. When I started out, who, who's your number one interview? And I always would say Dennis LaCordia. I can say this at the end now, the interview's done. I don't. I no longer need to play it particularly cool, but no, it's been amazing, mate. So I can't thank you enough for, for giving me so thank much you. of your time. Thanks. I appreciate and, it. Uh, yeah, and I'll be, I'll be giving you away. If you hear me screaming, I'll, I'll be like the high pitch screaming, Dennis, Dennis, on Friday night at Kelvin Grove. So keep an eye yeah, out. I will. I will. Thank you, man. This has been really nice. I appreciate it. Legend. And I, have thank- to get over, I have to get over all the nice things you said, you know, so. Um, well, if you, tell you what, go and fuck yourself, right? That'll just even up a wee bit. Perfect. It's like all my friends in New Jersey. I called <laughs> the guy, I called the girl I knew that I had not seen that I went to school with. I called a guy named Paulie and I called him and I hadn't seen him in maybe 35 years. And I got his number out of the blue and called him Cole. Didn't even know it. And he answered and said, hello. And I said, Paulie. Dennis LaCourier, and he went, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, believe me, man, you just made me comfortable. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you on the road somewhere. Take care. See you then. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another episode of Blethered soon. Cheers. Blethered was written, recorded, and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media, Natural Wonders, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug, and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.